My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. One of the great clubs in the land is Virtual Harriers, and uh, Tony Hadley has got the distinction of being chairman. Tony has coached some of our very best athletes in the, the long sprint, the 400 meters, over a long period of years. The first thing I'd like to ask you, Tony, is your immediate recollections of your first occasion in which you took part in a major event as an athlete. My first recollection of competing was um, at Cadbury's in Bourneville, Birmingham, competing in the district schools championships on a grass track on the playing fields that belong to Cabras. <laughs> so my first recollection is the smell of chocolate. <laughs> Did you get a chocolate bar for winning? Uh, no, we didn't. Oh, uh, we, we actually got really nice medals, actually. And now I look back on it, I was destined to be a coach because at the two local schools to me, George Gandhi at St. Philip's Grammar School, uh, he asked me when I was in the uh, Watch the Schools team to, like, help and mentor a younger athlete on the team and then to the other side of my school at the comprehensive was Kelvin Giles the stalwarts of coaching that were teaching peer schools local to me uh, that was very fortunate indeed wasn't it what was your then immediate experience of sprinting I did well as, as a junior but in that transition to senior I struggled really yeah going to train as a P teacher that that was a big shift in my mindset became less about me as a competitor and my thoughts were more towards uh, helping others really um, and I started to coach others when I was still competing myself quite young an 18 year old Phil Brown that I coached was in the final of the yeah. National Indoor 200 against myself and Daly Thompson and Phil won oh, wow. at that point I thought I think I might be a better coach than I'm a competitor oh <laughs> you ran against Daly the Indoor Phil won it Daly was second I think and I was third Cosford, those are the days. <laughs> You're the first person to just come up with that. When I finished the teacher training college, I, I came back to Birmingham and, and took up a post in a school in, in uh, Four Oaks and stayed there throughout the whole of my teaching career until, you know, 2009. And like virtual at that time was in a little bit of a mess. And so we started to work with a lot of youngsters. Yeah, started to build things up at Birchfield in the late 70s, early early 80s. What shape did that take? I mean, how many? Oh, I remember having like 50 kids at one stage. <laughs> and then, then gradually, as the winter nights come round, then it sort of came down to more manageable numbers. And um, I'd have 16 to 20 sprinters, hurdlers that I'd work with, brought them through the Young Athletes League and into junior athletics and then up into senior. I'm looking at a photo now of... Phil Brown, Dave Redmond, and Lincoln Asquith and, and Co. Yeah, there are 16 athletes on that photo I can see there. That's terrific. It started, as I say, with Phil Brown. He used to run the last leg of the 4x4 four four, um, exceedingly well. He was never, ever overtaken on the last leg of a 4x4 four four in his career, ever. Good God. No one ever did it. He had a unique talent to be running at top speed and yet coming into the home straight would be able to go up another gear and be able to create, you know, one metre inside three or four steps in the home straight. Yeah. 
One of the key relationships with athletes that you had, and you mentioned him briefly there, was with Derek Redmond. Famous moment with his father helping him finish the race after pulling up injured at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Just tell us about working with Derek, the background to that incident, and your memory of his now late father, Jim. Yeah, you know, with sadness, you know, Jim's no longer with us. And it was it was wonderful to attend his funeral, which was full of, you know, appreciation of what he did and, and great humour. And that that was the man. You never said no to Jim. <laughs> Derek, when he was youngster, came to me wanting to coach him. And at the time, I, I felt that he was being a little bit disloyal to the coach that had brought him through as a, as a youngster. So I sent him away. And then six months later, he comes with dad. <laughs> and you don't say no to dad. <laughs> um, so, there, you know, we then had that relationship that, took us through for you know for the next decade really and Jim was a very very positive character and that, and that certainly rubbed off on, on Derek who to coin a technical term in terms of sports psychology Derek had a, a growth mindset um so that he was very good at being able to to self-evaluate uh, reflect on performances and and not judge himself on whether he won or lost you know he was making progress and was very good at being able to be resilient you know, he'd see the silver lining in every dark cloud. Then he had to because, you know, unfortunately, he broke the British record, well, not unfortunately, but he broke the British record in 85, and then he, again at Rome in 87. And then the winter of 87, doing a session on Cannock Chase running up the hill, um, it broke his big toe. And at the time, we thought nothing much of it other than <laughs> being a bit of pain in the foot. But that then became um, the underlying issue with a series of Achilles injuries and sports medicine at the time were very quick to slice Achilles open. Now, that's the last thing that they would do. Derek, unfortunately, had seven operations in, I think, five years on his Achilles. So it was ironical that in, in 92 in Barcelona, having had another Achilles operation um, at the beginning of March, Fast forward to to July, having had like three races going into Barcelona Olympics, and probably in the best shape you know we'd ever seen him. It was a a hamstring injury that you know brought his career to a sudden halt. And um, there was that famous moment of when Dad, who was stood next to me at the steeplechase barrel with one fifty to go, you know, and he said, "You know, here, have this," you know. So he thrust his camera in into my midriff and barged his way past me and you know I saw him legging it down the, the stairs and leaping over onto the track and shoving all the security people out the way um, to get to Derek and then you know the rest is history as it were. What did that tell you about his relationship with his son and how did you fit into that picture as a coach and mentor? Um, when, when Jim was in hospital um we had the conversation, you know, just a few a few months ago, right, reflecting upon that moment in 92. You know, I said, I've always thought that you blame me for what happened. Anyway, that far from him. That was the last thing that crossed Jim's mind. Uh, he was very, very um, appreciative of the relationship that I had with Derek. As far as he was concerned, I was his athletics father. And the relationship that I had with Derek, um, obviously, is never the same as he would have with his own father. But 
even to this day now, you know, Derek and I will will speak to each other quite regularly and, you know, we're very supportive of each other, um, which hasn't always been the case with all the other athletes that I've coached that are retired, you know, so a special relationship, really. I guess surprise from you then when Jim stepped onto the track, but no one was going to stop him that day, were they? No, no. That was, you know, just the, the love of a dad. I remember thinking, Derek, go down, <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop putting yourself through this pain. But I knew that, you know, he'd, he'd had so many setbacks in his career that, you know, he wasn't going to be beaten by an injury. He was going to be beaten by the opposition and not being good enough to make the final, but be beaten by an injury was like, uh, no, that's not happening to me. And you know what? Since then, in the last 25 years of coaching, I've never had an athlete with an Achilles problem. I learned a lot how to handle and deal with Achilles issues uh, through Derek, unfortunately. And Dwayne Ledejo. So I looked after Dwayne when he came back from American Texas University. The American college system is now being used more and more by countries all over the world, not just us, even in Jamaica, isn't it, as a finishing school? What do you think of that? You can have the best coaching in the world, but if you don't get out there and compete, you're never going to improve your performance. The, the great thing that the Americans have is their college and university system. They have quality competition from the end of January right through to the end of June, and it's fantastic. We'll talk more about competition and the current state of the sport in a moment, but we have to talk about Matt Hudson-Smith, British 400-metre record holder now, he won World Commonwealth and European medals last year. The middle one of those on his home track in Birmingham. He mentioned your name in talking about the club in the podcast that we did ahead of the Commonwealths. Here's what he had to say. I'm going to get in trouble because like, yeah, there's so many people who are in and around Birchall. The club itself has got such a high pedigree. And um, I could list off like literally like Tony Hadley who was my original coach when I was in Birchall, Sharon Morris, who got me when I was 10 and made me fall in love with the sport. It just has such a rich history and being there, you learn the fundamentals of the sport and yeah, from grassroots to now professionals, it's just an amazing environment to be in and it is actually inspiring. Matt Hudson-Smith there. Tony, what does it mean to see him fulfilling his potential and to know that he's grateful to you for playing a part in his journey? I mean, I started coaching Matt when he was 14. He was competing in the English schools in the 400 and he finished well actually he didn't finish the race um the final um he dropped out with 150 to go and there was another lad that won the event Clovis Song around 48 too as a as a 15 year old which was the fastest time in the world at the time and everyone was like raving about Clovis and, and you know I actually said <laughs> the kid that's dropped out that's the talent we stayed at ones and twos for four years and when he became a senior in 2014, that's when I moved him back up to the 400. And that's when he ran the last leg of the 4x4 for England at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. I continued to coach Matt. He was at university, got his degree, made the Olympic final in Rio, <laughs> participated in the fastest 400 of all time, won a European silver with myself. Yeah, around 44 40-something uh, with myself, so... Remarkable. I have no predictability. Zero. 
I have never been able to predict what athletes would do. When you saw him at 14, could you possibly have imagined what you're talking about now? No, because he was all skin and bones. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like a puppet on the string, but somebody cut the strings. Yeah. But then he, he grew eight inches in five years. Jeez, oh dear God. Oh. That in itself was... Was a major fact. <laughs> bittersweet pill, you know, growing that much in such a short period of time produced its um, difficulties. Um, but... Yeah, I got there in the end. And um, yeah, very proud and very pleased of what he's achieved. I can understand that. What are your thoughts at present in terms of identifying talent and getting it towards good coaching and good competition? I think it's slightly different for yeah. me here in Birmingham at the moment because of uh, the issue with us not having a, a trap for the last three years. So they're prepared for the Commonwealth Games. So we have struggled with getting young athletes into club oh, athletics yeah. in the last few years. The angst of adolescence kicks in a lot earlier than, than it used to. Get them before the zombie phase of their, <laughs> their growth kicked in. <laughs> when I was a boy, the number of other options to you were virtually negligible. It was football in the winter and a bit of athletics in the summer. And that was, there was nothing. Whereas now you've got them looking greater diversity of sports. Absolutely. And the academies within uh, football have really got their act together. That pool of talent that uh, will be picked up by, yeah. by athletics is very much focused towards football these days. But before academies, the youngsters could, could be going along to the local professional football club, but in the summer they'd still be allowed to compete in athletics. And they knew that if things didn't work out in football, I've got a talent, you know, to be a triple jumper or to be a long That's jumper. Right. I remember my last days of, of teaching that there was pressure for them not to do anything uh, in the summer, not to do athletics and not to do cricket. Oh, dear. Those kids get dropped by, by the academies when they're 16, not knowing that they had the potential in another sport. Football, they can take 30-odd kids yeah. and have them all doing something purposeful. So it varies from one sport to another. Teaching athletics in a school environment it is not easy. And you have to really organise facilities and you know, pole vault and hammer. It can't be done. It never did crack that one. No, nobody has. And I don't think anybody ever <laughs> will. So don't be troubled by your, yeah. by your failure because I, I didn't even attempt it. There was a scheme in Birmingham where there was um, indoor athletics. It took place in, in January and the final took place for the top schools in February at the National Indoor Arena in the week that the, the Diamond League competition took place. It was the best format I'd ever seen for introducing athletics to schools because it was team-based. The kids got so excited. 80% of the secondary schools in Birmingham participated in that. It's fun, but it also identifies those with talent and you're able then to, to streamline them into the local clubs. There was a period when the government had a sports coach coordinators attached to schools. And I think it came in about 2008 and finished in 2010 when the government pulled the plug. And, and these teachers were there and that their focus was to organise into schools competition. I could just see that growth of kids coming in into athletics at that time. And then it was cut. For me, as a recovery from COVID, there's a generation of, of kids, you know, people talk about the problems for, for the older ones that had issues in training during lockdown. 
Well, the kids never went to school for two years. And so formal PE lessons just didn't exist. So I think there's a, a real concern about the physical development of millions of children. The government needs to really work hard at getting kids more active. And I think our sport as athletics, as I say, needs to get in there and uh, support the PE teachers who I think lack the confidence to deliver athletics in schools. And then the other thing is just making sure that we've got, we've got coaches um, in sufficient numbers to cope with with coaching the kids. But you do have a problem there, don't you? In the sense that when they arrive in clubs or, or they stay in clubs beyond 15 in these areas, there are no coaches. And why should a guy want to spend hundreds of hours? I know I've spent most of my life in it, thousands of hours, in my, tens of thousands in my case. Why should people want to do this on a purely voluntary basis? in these rural areas? I've been a voluntary coach all my life. <laughs> I just don't think that the sport has ever has been in a position to sustain, you know, professional coaching. I might be a little bit of a dinosaur here, but I just don't see how it's possible to for professional coaching to exist in, in the UK. I tend to go with you on that. The big worry is that the younger generation of coaches that are coming through don't have the same mindset as me, and I understand that and are professionalizing what they have to offer, but they're doing it outside of the club network. Yes, that's right. And that is a problem for the sport. How do you see it as a problem, actually? In terms of understanding the importance of the club competition, what clubs can offer, but also monitoring and, and standardizing the and evaluating the expertise and the delivery that these coaches are offering. Most of the coaching in Britain in most sports is voluntary. Few exceptions I was involved with in this morning. Tennis. Tennis isn't. Most clubs have got you know paid coaches, not full-time coaches necessarily. I think it's a time to review the landscape and say, now, this is where we are now. Let's be honest about it. We've got to be very, very realistic about what we've got. There's been a big drop-off in the number of athletes competing, but also officials that, that are available right. to, to organise yeah. competition. I think there's too little competition now for seniors yeah, and it's too soon in the season. It was a struggle for senior athletes to find competition during August. It hardly existed. Competition that did exist is too often it's at venues that are poor surfaces for, for speed. Inability of having timing gauges where you could reverse the competition so that it could be on the back straight with a following win yeah. for 100 and, and sprint hurdles, etc. Yeah. A lot that needs to be done in getting competition in the quantity and the quality that is necessary. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. Turning the sprint and the hurdles around yeah. to have a following win, um, I know it's tiresome for officials to do that. And, you know, they could argue that, well, if, if you get um, a, a win that's above the legal limit, then it doesn't count. On the one hand, I accept that, but actual fact, you, you have a couple of competitions where you've got a three or four metre wind up your backside. Your body still runs faster than it's ever gone before, and you're teaching your body, and, and the neural system is getting the hit that it requires. I think that's spot on, and I, I would live with that, definitely. Looking at that question of the fast track, first I would say that the new stadium at Birmingham, I think, when, the first time I looked at it, I thought, that is absolutely bloody marvellous yeah. and there was no crowd in it at all and I thought that is a place where you're going to get a real 
joyous experience of athletics. But then I was told that the track was not at the highest possible quality for speed. It's a darn sight faster than uh, the cinders tracks that we had, the grass tracks that we had. And it's a darn sight faster than the previous track that was down at Birchfield beforehand. Yeah. And you've only got to look at some of the performance at the Commonwealth Games, you know, and like... Oh, excellent. Now we'll need to go sub-11. It's not that slow a track. <laughs> I was actually going to say that, you know, that in terms of running faster in Birmingham, it's not a case of the, the surface being at 95% compared with the 100% uh, in Eugene. Yeah. The issue that you're always going to get in Birmingham is the wind. From what I've seen so far, the new stand on, on the home straight is high enough and reaches round far enough to keep the prevailing southwesterly winds, westerly winds oh, yeah. out the stadium. So it's wait and see. You see, I was thinking that all the time. I think, what's this wind situation going to be? You know that really intimately because, you know, you're there. Now, what influence did the formal coach education process have upon you? Formal coach education... I'd say was quite limited, and I think it's continued to be quite limited. The one-to-one examination that we had to get the club coach award, I remember Bill Marlowe did my coaching award with the pipe and the Alsatian um, uh, to hand. (laughs) I think I had a good grounding. I think it's the interaction with the with the coaches that um, are therefore more on on the development side of things that I think has been more effective. John Anderson... I think was ahead of his time. Dynamic warm-up. People thought that John was a bit of a nutter um, in terms of the focus on speed in training, the dynamic warm-up. Whereas like now, you know, sports science is yeah. caught up with John. But in defense of it, the senior coach award syllabus, you know, I've still got it and I still refer to it. And I and I think, it, you know, it's such a good document from the 80s that, that stands uh, the test of time. There's a couple of coaches that I've, I've come into contact with from um, America in, in recent years and very smart people. They were very good at, at coming up with, you know, fantastic, you know, and accurate anatomical terms. But for me, the art of coaching is understand the complex, but then be able to convey it to the athlete in the most simple terms possible. Yeah, simplicity. I would, I would say, yeah. keep it simple, stupid. I'm not saying that to you. I'm talking to me in that regard. Is there anything that's happened during your coaching career that's made you think differently about the way you coach? My methodology as a coach, actually, has gone through many phases. <laughs> when I first started coaching, I, I rejected the ideology of the guy that coached me. There was very much an endurance background to to my coach. So when I first started to coach, I then had very much a a speed-based approach to 400. Then I was influenced by Mike Smith. And so I swung back to more of a strength-based endurance approach and and then realized, I can't remember at what point, there wasn't actually one eureka moment, but it was just just over a period of time that uh, for me, Coaching 400 in particular is is not about whether it's a speed based approach or an yeah. endurance based approach. It, for me, it's, it's it's both. It's it's actually fitting it to the needs of the athlete. Uh, I think you have your neural 400 meter runner, and then you have your strength based 400 meter runner. 
And how do I know the difference between the two? I'd say, okay, today there's under the 400. There's only a 200 or a 600, which you want to do. And those that chose the 600, I knew that, you know, it was more of a strength-based approach that had to be employed with them. Is there a way that the quality of a coach can be assessed? A method for deciding what makes a great coach? The only thing objective that I've come up with is to look at um, the performances of an athlete at the end of the under 20 age group and then track their progress or not by the time they've finished their career as a senior athlete. And so to give an example, I've looked at all the, the senior men's 400s, the, the UK all time list on the power of 10 and tracked, you know, OK, what did they do for 400 as an under 20 and what did they finally achieve? by the end of their careers. It surprised me, actually, at the average improvement was 1.27 seconds, you know, for every British male 400 meter runner. I thought it'd be higher than that, but that's how it, how it worked out, if my maths is correct. <laughs> and the good thing, for, as far as I was concerned, that my overall improvement with athletes that I coached from under 23 to senior was above the average, so it was 1.91. I won't go into too much detail about everybody else, but... I rank pretty high. <laughs> um, and Mike Smith, the, the late, great Mike Smith, is just behind me. <laughs> what would you like your legacy to be? Someone that cared and helped make a difference to, to the lives of, of other people. Not just in terms of, you know, making it to major games and, and medals, but just providing uh, the kind of structure to a life and developing the mindset to succeed in life after sport. Yeah, I've just recently become chair of Birchfield again, and um, we've just had the Commonwealth Games here in Birmingham. I'm sure with the Commonwealth Games Legacy Fund that, that Birmingham is about to distribute and the great history and heritage that we have at Birchfield, the general committee, we were sort of had a root and branch review of the club and the operations of the club. And we're, you know, we're now looking to engage with the Birchfield alumni, which is uh, pretty tasty, you know, in like Dame Denise Lewis and Kath Mary and Kelly Southerton and Phil and Derek, Aston Moore, and and the list goes on. We, we want to connect with them and, and see how we can inspire, as I say, the next generation coming through in Birmingham. What's this space with Birchfield? A sleeping giant is about to roar again. <laughs> Are there any other issues you want to bring up, Tony? Because I think we've covered every goddamn thing you could manage under the sun. <laughs> no, I think we've put the world to right. <laughs> no, <I don't... laughs> Just listen to what we've said, guys, and then put it into practice. <laughs> but this has been really absolutely excellent. No, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. You've been an idol of mine. Oh, no. no, no, not a great... The time lord of coaching. Oh, no, no, don't say that. <laughs> well, thanks very much indeed, Tony. No, thank you very much, Tom. 